McDonald's had received imports from the factory. The restaurant chain apologised for releasing what it called confusing information. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis on this Friday. Amazon reports a larger loss than expected and the stock is slammed. Baidu goes the other direction, handily beating estimates. And the China meat scare brings foreign suppliers under the scope. Also, McDonald's pulled chicken McNuggets off the Hong Kong menu. So more on that in just a few minutes. Our guests this morning include Norman Chan of NAB Private Wealth Advisory on Markets. We'll also speak to Norman about the likelihood of defaults in in China. Later, we'll be speaking with Mark C. and Michael O'Keefe of Ace and Company about angel investors. Who are they? Who needs them? And what are they looking for in startup investments? And also Edmund Chan from PwC will be with us looking at mainland IPOs, the trends, fears and expectations. But to get started, a teaser two here on Amazon's earnings and the investor response. I think there is finally a sea change here where people are saying, you you know, there's a broad spectrum of new issues out there. There's a lot more places to allocate your capital. This one has some really wide open questions with respect to its ability to ever generate cash. Why do I own it? That's Bloomberg contributor Paul Kodrowski. A lot of investors probably asking that question now. Why do I own it? The stock was down 6% in after hours trade. And here's Corey Johnson. Fundamentally, businesses need to be profitable. This one just barely is. It just barely is. So details on that in a minute. Let's get you updated on Asian markets now. At first, uh, in Australia, the market is down a little bit there. The SX200 down two points, 55.74. Otherwise, in Seoul, the Kospi is up up about a fifth of 1%. Japanese stocks moving higher this morning. We just got the inflation numbers, 3.3% in the last quarter in Japan. And that was right on um, market expectations. The dollar yen now 101.78. The euro's at 1.345 U.S. dollars. The pound is trading at 13 Hong Kong dollars and six cents. The pound slipping a little bit. The Australian dollar down. It was almost up to 95 cents yesterday. Now 94.17 U.S. cents. We'll get you gold and oil a bit later. But first, um, in terms of news flow, McDonald's pulling chicken McNuggets and other products from its Hong Kong menus. The company said it had imported chicken and pork from the Shanghai supplier that is embroiled in a meat scandal. McDonald's previously had denied that it had brought food in from that Shanghai plant. Last night, it admitted it and it apologized. On to Amazon, reporting a loss of $126 million in the second quarter. It also warned that sales might slow in the current quarter. And that's what really got investors' attention. Revenues were up 22%, but profit missed estimates by a large margin. Analysts were looking for a loss of 15 cents. So they were already looking for a loss, but it was supposed to be 15 cents. It came in at 27 cents. More from Corey Johnson. Amazon's a great big business driving lots of revenues and growing at a good clip, but at a much slower clip. The sales growth at Amazon has really come down from 
high 30s, yep. even 40 percent year over year to, to 27 percent year over year. The most recent quarter that they reported was just 22 percent on a year over year basis. But then you add to that, you know, the margins are collapsing. We know the margins are pathetic at Amazon. Stock investors decide that they don't care about that. That's their problem. But when we look at the business, fundamentally businesses need to be profitable. This one just barely is. It just barely is. Amazon normally has very thin profit margins, but investors usually look beyond that, as we've been hearing. But today's warning over sales did spook uh, investors and the stock down 6% in after hours. Investors are sort of wonderfully backward looking and then extrapolating forward. In the, for the, you've been hit over the head with a mallet for over a decade with Amazon if you were focused on cash flow. This is a stock that beat you up for, you know, basically since IPO. Because this, you know, the famously Barron's talked about this, you know, Amazon's problems with cash flow and what was going to happen. It has never paid to focus on Amazon's cash flow for a decade. So, you know, people have gotten the lesson. That's it. I get it. But as I said earlier, I think there is finally a sea change here where people are saying, you, you know, there's a broad spectrum of new issues out there. There's a a lot more places to allocate your capital. This one has some really wide open questions with respect to its ability to ever generate cash. Why do I own it? Tech analyst Paul Kudrowski. Expenses were high as the firm built more distribution warehouses, did more grocery deliveries, and developed new smartphones and tablets. And here's some more. I, I think that you know, the biggest transformation, we don't really talk about it a lot, but is that this has gone from a media company selling CDs videotapes even and books when when you know five years ago that was well over 50 percent of revenues in the last full year it was just 29 percent of revenues so expanding the categories they sell into has helped them grow revenues but has really pushed margins even lower for this company to the point of where you wonder where can they grow and do these projects matter whatsoever so I run a lot of Amazon there for you because, of course, with Alibaba's uh, IPO coming up, people are really looking at this overall kind of business. Uh, not easy to compare the two, but still, you can bet that people will be. Looking at some of the other earnings, they were actually quite a bit different from Amazon. They were encouraging Starbucks, Ford, and Facebook, for instance, all posting profits that beat estimates and fueled their stocks to the upside. Facebook, for instance, up 5.2%. So far, 77% of S&P 500 companies have beaten estimates. That's higher than normal. Facebook shares closed at a record. Ford turned its first profit in Europe in three years, and Starbucks reported a 23% gain in its third quarter profit. Overall, the S&P 500 in this session, this latest one that closed just a couple of hours ago, adding 0.1% to a record 1987. The Dow down a little bit, down two points at 17,083. Jobless claims fell to the lowest level in eight and a half years. So that's good news. Fewer people filing unemployment claims, claims dropping 19,000 to 284,000. Economists had expected the claims to actually rise to 308,000. So our guest coming up shortly, um, I just wanted to mention that uh, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note was at 2.50%, and that was up four basis points. And also here in Hong Kong, shares hit their highest level in three years yesterday. The Hang Seng Index up over 24,000 at 24,141, gain of 0.7%, and also the busiest day of trading in some three months. We get a little bit here from Dickie Wong from Kingston Securities saying there's strong momentum and no sign of slowing. The Hong Kong stock market just is keep on going. 
especially um, in mainland China. Um, there's a lot of positive news, no matter from the real estate market, like 3060 has relaxed or abolished property purchasing um, policy. And also the PMI data, that's the key reason uh, to boost the Hong Kong stock markets. The Hong Kong dollar uh, remains very strong. That's the key point to drive the Hong Kong stock market, especially the Hang Seng Index, um, to go above 24,000 points. Uh, but even like when we talk about the valuation now, the Hong Kong stock market is still cheap compared to markets in um, Southeast Asia, even US or Europe. So I, I think that um, there's some kind of momentum keep on going. And that was uh, Dickie Wong from Kingston Securities. Grace Ung, the analyst, told Bloomberg that that latest PMI reading in China of 52 shows promising growth momentum in the country for the rest of the year. What we have seen in terms of pretty encouraging recovery in the second quarter uh, will go well, continue into the second, uh, second half of the year, third quarter and fourth quarter. I think uh, what we have in the economy right now is both that the external sector and the domestic sector are on pretty steady recovery trend. Uh, for the external side, what we had was a pretty um, softish global environment in the first half of the year uh, with the impact of Japanese VAT, the weather in the U.S. and so on. Uh, so what our global team is looking for is to return to some pretty solid around trend growth in the global economy that will support China's export sector. Um, and then on the domestic side, we have the number of pro-growth measures coming in that supported the second quarter GDP and that would quite likely going on into the second half of the year. 12 minutes now after 8 o'clock. We say good morning now to Norman Chan from NAB Private Wealth Advisory. Norman, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Thank morning. you for coming in. Yeah, it's great to have you here in the studio. Sure. Um, yeah, let's start off with uh, Hong Kong since um, we've had a really nice run here of the last uh, three or four days. Mm-hmm. We've been underperforming for a long time, but it looks like now the market has really perked up. What What is causing it? Well, I think, um, first of all, you can see that um, the sentiment has turned more positive on the China market as well as Hong Kong market lately. And, uh, you know, people lost count about how, how many times actually has stepped in and to sell Hong Kong dollar. And there's a lot of um, capital inflow. In the meantime, uh, we have a positive environment from the um, global stock market. Then the U.S. markets are making new high, although not by a great magnitude, but they're still, you know, edging higher and higher. And I think most important of all is that we have seen that um, the China economy has been able to rebound after slumping earlier. And that um, the risk of hard landing is now look like, you know, much less likely. And uh, we have been betting on that for a long time already. And finally, you know, I think the market realized that uh, the government is very keen to support the so-called bottom line growth. They are going to do more restructuring. To You're talking about the Chinese government? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. And the mainland governments, they are trying to restructure structural issues such as, you know, um, uh, excessive debts, but they're going to do it in a positive growth environment, which is much easier to do. And uh, that may mean that they will take longer to finally resolve the problems, uh, but that also means that the economic growth in the meantime would be much less volatile. So do you think that investors think the kind of stimulus that China is doing is appropriate? It's not the full-on stimulus that mm-hmm. they brought forward in 2008 and nine, but it's more targeted, it's smaller, and it's sensible, and so they're buying into that story. 
Yes, I think uh, most important one is not just that they um, buy into the stimulus that will be working, that they have seen also data delivering that um, uh, is now happening. So, so I think um, the economy actually is getting better, and, and investors are responding more to that than the stimulus. It is slightly better, but I think most important of all is that, that they have seen the um, willingness of the central government to support the economy when it's needed, and uh, that uh, they are still you know, very keen to support growth, and that restructuring can be delayed a little bit. So what parts of the mainland economy are working the best, uh, in your view? I would say that the private sector and uh, the um, private sector has been doing much better than the state-owned enterprise. And this is also one of the um, major policy directions recently announced, that the private sector would drive more growth in the economy. And, uh, and the state-owned enterprise would participate less in the um, economy. And I think the mainland China government um, is now trying to use the um, much better efficiency in the private sector to drive further growth. Because um, the state-owned enterprise has done a lot already, but I think it's probably about time to, for them to um, um, stay back a little bit. Do you worry about some of these debt issues that have come up and the possibility of defaults? I think the debt issues um, is going to be a problem in the short to medium term. And uh, um, default, they have avoided once this week, a near miss, and the second default um, on the onshore bond market. And uh, But I expect, you know, eventually there will be a second one, there will be a third one, there will be a fourth one, there will be many more to come. And uh, But that's a positive thing, you know. Starbucks uh, said that uh, third quarter China-Asia-Pacific revenue was up 23%. That was pretty solid. Uh, is that part of the economy working in China? People who have enough disposable income that they can spend um, three US dollars on a cup of coffee? Yes, I think um, uh, the China consumption power is probably being underestimated. If Starbucks will be able to you know, um, register such kind of growth, that's a very good sign. And on the other hand, you know, and uh, I think um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a news saying that the Transformer debut has, much, has even a bigger box office in China than in you know, U.S. I think that shows the um, potential of China consumption market. So given your feelings about the mainland economy, uh, how do you translate that into market gains? So for people listening, they'd be interested in your views on uh, which companies um, are benefiting the most, and uh, particularly if they're listed here. Yes, I think, um, first of all, you know, we don't expect a lot of index gains, especially from mainland China uh, for the next, you know, one or two years. The index gains would be quite um, minimal and uh, probably no more than like, you know, uh, high single digit per year. But under the index, you will see a lot of actions, you know, just like what I've said before, the policy has been driving state enterprise to um, participate less in the economy and let the private sector to drive growth. And that may mean that, you know, the state enterprise may have to um, continue to be weak and uh, the state enterprise would be much more interesting and you will see uh, more domestic oriented companies to do better. And uh, like I think very soon you'll talk about the Baidu earnings is one of the sectors that have been doing well. And also um, some of the environmental sector will also do well. And But on that side, I would say that uh, retail investors probably would like to use professional fund managers, you know, like we have been do- using uh, to tap those kind of opportunities. Because going forward, it's not the major blue chip stocks or red chip stocks that are going to make money. And uh, it's going to be among, the small cap. Among some of the uh, best performers of late have been the China property companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at China Wangke and uh, some of those uh, China overseas land, they've done pretty well. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that investors are starting to uh, either believe that they've fallen so far that they represent value or that the mainland is going to um, ensure that there isn't a a major property calamity? And can the mainland government ensure that? I mean, I'm sure the U.S. government and the Fed thought that they could um, prevent a calamity, but they couldn't. 
Mm-hmm. I think um, the U.S. and China economic structure is quite different, and yeah, to uh, say the least. Yeah, and uh, and uh, China government has uh, has more control on the economy. It's still a pretty much a planned economy, and uh, I think property sector is going to be a very volatile one. Uh, even major companies um, would be you know riding along the um, volatility, and that's why you probably want to have professional managers to help you you know time the market so to speak. And uh, on the other hand, um, besides property companies. Names we have seen a lot of um, retail names with a lot of um, uh, environmental smaller companies names such as gas distributions or maybe like internet names which uh, have been very strong in 2013 and have some corrections in this year and uh, there are many many different kind of stocks and sectors to choose from in mainland China going forward. You know I'm always hesitant to ask people in the industry about. Uh Alibaba, because so many people involved in the IPO. Can you talk about Alibaba a little bit? Uh, yes, and uh, I'm not an investment bank. I can talk about Alibaba, and I've talked about it before, and I'm glad so, that the Hong Kong So let's, let's relate Amazon's earnings uh, to what Alibaba is doing. Do you read anything out of the Amazon report, and does that influence your thinking about Alibaba? Um, you know, um, I, to me, I think um, Amazon is quite different from Alibaba as well, and they are also in um, a similar kind of e-commerce, you can say, but uh, Amazon is more focused on book and music in developed countries, and uh, and also now they're starting to, you know, um, uh, obviously they're trying to penetrate into the hardware market as well, to try to build their ecosystem, and Amazon is probably more focusing on software, on on, on, on website, and, uh, and uh, I think Alibaba is more focused on software and website, I'm sorry. And also, more importantly, is that Alibaba mostly operate in China, and uh, which is pretty much a protected market for companies like Alibaba, and uh, because China want to control the internet. Um, so that's why they have less competitions and uh, than you know, companies like Amazon would have in the U.S. There's an interesting tidbit from Xinhua this morning, um, which is uh, saying that Alibaba's Yuibao will start service for vehicle purchases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're getting almost into a position where they're going to rival banks. I mean, they've this Yuibao is amazingly popular. People really have gone for that. Yes. And that's a vehicle that gives people returns of, say, 6 or 7%. Yes. It's a sort of um, shadow banking product, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people trust Amazon, maybe even, I mean, uh, Alibaba, maybe even more than they trust the banks. Uh, yes, that's the that's the reasons why they have been so successful, and I think they have been surprised by that as well. And uh, but uh, in a financial industry, you know, it's about dist- distribution efficiency and also the reputations. And uh, in China market, um, um, uh, it's very different from any other market. The online companies have better reputations than regular banks and uh, that's why they have been able to penetrate so quickly now i think the government is trying to give them some regulations and uh, but um, uh, many companies are trying to develop financial services you can see that um, tencent is actually buying a bank you know um, uh, preparing to buy land to build a bank for their own in you know um, um, china and i think uh, more and more companies would actively participate in the financial industry Final question. We've seen this big rally. Um, things looking pretty good at the moment. Does Occupy Central derail that in any way? Um, um, I don't think so. You know, Occupy Central is going to be um, of limited effect. And, um, and uh, I think um, to make it work, you know, first of all, <laughs> I've been talking about it offline for a long time. You know, Occupy Wall Street has not been too successful. You know, how, how, why would I expect Occupy Central to have much bigger success? Yeah. Okay, Norman, thanks very much. Uh, I didn't actually get any individual picks. You give us one pick, anything you really like? 
Uh, no, we don't. We don't do stock. You don't pick. do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. All right. Anyway, uh, thanks very much. Uh, give us the broad overview and kind of the macro picture. And uh, so uh, that's Norman Chen, NAB Private Wealth Advisory Investment Director. We've got a couple of uh, angels, quite angelic uh, guests on the program coming up in just a moment. Mark C. And Michael O'Keefe from Ace and Company, angel investors, and we'll be talking with them after the break at eight thirty. Not even a smile on their faces. Aren't you? You guys are not angelic after all, huh? We'll be back in just a moment. This festival there's almost a hundred bands wanting to play. They don't apologize for the fact that they know an ABBA song is going to come along. They are all making their voices heard on the bridge. You have young people dressing, you know, in bikinis and swimming suits. Overdo the water, it becomes a mush. Musicians, actors, writers, regular contributors from VIPs visiting the city. Yes, my first time in Hong Kong, and I'm loving it. To interesting people found lost in the corridor. I love you just passing through. Just kidding. You're on the air. Local happenings, current affairs, and yes, even cookery. So. With a yeah, decent quality of you know, butter. See, if I go shopping for flour, I buy flour. It's all on the morning brew with Phil Whelan. Weekdays on RTHK Radio 3. And I think we should stress this none of this is to do with politics. None whatsoever. Yeah, welcome back to Money for Nothing. If you want to get to that program, Morning Brew, you'll have to stay with me through 9 o'clock this morning. And we're going to look at IPO activities. Now, Hong Kong's IPOs for the first half of 2014 reached a decade high in terms of number of newly listed companies. The first half of the year saw 52 new listings in Hong Kong with $81.2 billion of total fundraising. We're joined in our studios by Edmund Chan from PwC, the capital markets partner there. Edmund, good morning. Good morning. What changed that all of a sudden the first half of this year was fairly solid? Okay. If you look at um, the second half of, of last year, actually um, the momentum has been built up. And um, if uh, without the some uh, adjustment time during the later first quarter this year, actually I think the first half of this year would have been much better. Uh, when you look at the later part of the first quarter, uh, they, at that time there were some concern about uh, the, the continued growth in China market. Uh, and uh, but fortunately now people believe that uh, there won't be any hard landing and um, there will be continued stable growth. And at the same time, um, there continue to be positive signal from U.S. economy. So uh, even with that uh, minor adjustment, uh, some some slowdown and uh, some delay of the large IPO at that period of time, um, we we still continue the momentum. Uh, you you been, actually made pretty good money if you went with those IPOs uh, uh, compared to the Hong Kong market, which actually had a pretty weak first half of the year. The IPOs actually performed much better individually. Does that mean that they were all priced low? Yeah, I think because um, some of them actually come out at the time when the pricing is not so favorable. But I think towards the end of June, uh, we've seen a more and more IPO price higher. Uh, in fact, if you look at the uh, IPO for, for June, eight of them actually priced over 20 times. So that means that you can't exactly extrapolate from first half growth and think, well, I'll pile into a few of these IPOs coming in the second half because they're actually raising the, uh, the pricing to the point where, you know, you're really going to have to scrutinize them closely. Uh, yes, I think actually the, we have seen that the pricing has, has gone up a bit. But at the same time, um, it all depends on the, uh, the, the, the 
uh, the overall stock market situation in the second half. If the Hansen Index continue to uh, to perform better, uh, I think definitely there may be uh, some more gain. But actually, the the the, the so-called the first day gain uh, will be much uh, less than, than than those in the first half. Apparently, there are something like 600 companies on the waiting list for uh, going public. Uh, are regulations being uh, eased a little bit to increase the number? <laughs> um, I think if you're talking about 600 companies in China or in Hong Kong. Uh, in China. Uh, in China. Okay, I think... In China, actually, um, China's stock market uh, is still young. And uh, when you look at the Chinese economy, I would say in the next few years, there will be over thousands of companies ready to go for IPO in the Asian market. So 600 companies, 600 number is not a, a, a big number to them. Um, but of course, it will take time. So... Um, and also at the moment, the PLC stock market is uh, undergoing some reforms. Uh, it's going to be changed from the administrative focus to more market-driven and um, and then getting towards the, the, the adoption of so-called the uh, registration uh, process. So I think that will take some time to absorb, but at the same time, that will provide momentum for China market and also for Hong Kong market going forward. Do you expect that the regulators' review of listings uh, in Hong Kong, the listing process, will it uh, eventually lead to major changes? Uh, and might that have been sparked by Alibaba selecting New York? I think at the moment um, it's still under consultation. But if you look at the past, um, based on the existing listing rule, uh, Hong Kong market has already been a success story for the last few years in the capital market world. So uh, I think going forward, um, I, I expect there will be some changes, but uh, uh, I don't think there will be a, a major significant changes. Yeah, just to give people an idea, we mentioned that figure of $81.2 billion the first half of 2014. This was an increase of more than 100% uh, to the amount raised in the same period last year. The total number that we had in the first half was 52 as compared to 23 in the first half of, of last year. As you look forward into the next six months, which are some of the most interesting issues uh, for you? I think in the second half of this year, um, what I will expect is there will be more exchanges coming to Hong Kong. I think so far the, in the first half, there's already 13. Uh, the historical high is about 23. Um, given that the relaxation of more uh, of exchanges coming, coming to Hong Kong and there are so many uh, uh, PLC companies ready to come to Hong Kong. So I think exchanges company, we do see there will be more of exchanges com- company coming to Hong Kong. Are investors still really worried in the accounting practices of these firms? Because that was a really big story in the past couple of years. I think if you look at um, uh, the past, actually, uh, given the number of companies listed in Hong Kong and, and elsewhere, uh, I, I would say most of them are, are the isolated case, and I think that happened uh, everywhere. And also, as China uh, continues to, to develop, uh, actually, for the China accounting standard, is now more closer to IFRS. And also, uh, for China, the both the audit standards, they are, they are very close to uh, internal, internal auditing standards. So I, I, although I think that, that won't preclude any uh, problem going forward, but uh, at least I think uh, that that should not uh, affect the investor interest in the PLC companies. Okay, Edmund, thank you for joining us here on Money for Nothing. That's Edmund Chan from uh, PwC in charge of Capital Markets, a partner there in Capital Markets. 
Markets are all higher now. Uh, the Nikkei's up 58 points. The others are up two. In the weather, we're looking at mainly cloudy skies with showers. Some thunderstorms, too. Sunshine expected, though, in a maximum temperature of 32. Showers over the weekend. The news coming up shortly. Past 8.30, the latest in news with Samantha Butler. Clashes have broken out between thousands of Palestinian protesters angry at events in Gaza and Israeli security forces near a checkpoint in the West Bank. At least three Palestinians have been killed and many others wounded. As the fighting continues in Gaza, the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has told Israel and Hamas that it's morally wrong to kill their own people. Speaking after talks in Cairo with the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, Mr. Ban said he'd been shocked and appalled by the shelling of a U.N.-run school in Beit Hanun in Gaza, in which 13 people died, four of them children. Palestinian officials have blamed the Israelis, but a spokesman for the Israeli government, Mark Regev, said the source of the missiles had yet to be confirmed. Our investigation is still ongoing. We'll get to the bottom of it. Obviously, it's a, a difficult combat situation. There was Hamas rockets that were falling in Beit Hanun in that area, so we can't rule out that possibility. But to be totally honest, I can't rule out the possibility either that it was errant Israeli fire. Officials in Burkina Faso say wreckage has been found in Mali from the Air Algerie plane which crashed yesterday. The plane had taken off from the capital Ouagadougou for Algiers. There were 116 people aboard, 50 of them French citizens. Radio Australia's David Marchese reports. Just 50 minutes after taking off from Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso, air traffic controllers lost contact with the Air Algerie flight. It never reached the Algerian capital. Search teams have been scouring the Sahara for traces of the plane that was carrying at least 116 people. The majority were French citizens. Air Algerie says all the passengers on the plane were in transit, either for Europe, the Middle East or Canada. Before contact was lost, the pilot had requested to change course because of a sandstorm. Human remains and wreckage continue to be found a full week after the Malaysia Airlines plane went down in eastern Ukraine. Three Australian officials, including a forensic specialist, have joined observers from the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe at the site. Michael Bacherkiu is a spokesman for the monitors and explains what they found. We went into quite a heavily wooded area and we observed there a huge piece of fuselage and I think this is the part of the airplane that came down which to most casual, even uh, airline travellers would resemble an airplane. The windows were still intact and uh, for for the second day in a row we did uh, come across some human remains, not much. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
Very good morning to you. The time, 8.33. You're listening to Money for Nothing. And we have more stimulating business talk coming up in a few minutes. We'll be speaking with Mark Seitz from Asin Company and Michael O'Keefe from the same firm. And they'll be talking about angel investing in Hong Kong. Just to give you a quick update on market action this morning, uh, all the markets are higher in Asia. And uh, we hit um, a a recent three-year high in Hong Kong yesterday. It'll be interesting to see whether that continues today. The Nikkei up 58 points at 15,000. 342 Australian Seoul with fractional gains. Oil prices are at now $107.13. Very little change. Gold uh, perked up a little bit, but uh, it had traded down in New York under $1,300, but picking up $2.20 now in Asian trading. And at the moment, $1,293 will get you one ounce of, of, uh, of gold. In the news, McDonald's is admitting now that it did import meat for sale in Hong Kong from a mainland factory that has been involved in a food safety scare. The fast food chain had earlier denied that any products on sale here came from the plant. That supplier has been accused of selling meat past its sell-by date. But after the Center for Food Safety announced that McDonald's had received imports from the factory, the restaurant chain then apologized for releasing what it called, quote, confusing information. As Wendy Wong reports, the government has now banned all imports from the affected supplier, Husi Food. McDonald's had earlier this week said that it had not imported any meat products from the Shanghai Husi Food Factory. That's at the heart of the scandal. But now it's emerged that it has done so at least twice over the past year. The Center for Food Safety said it was told by senior McDonald's executives that the chain had imported pork from the factory last year that were used in its tonkatsu meal. And just two months ago, it had bought chicken from the same factory that was used in its McSpicy chicken fillet burger. It says all the food has been sold. An assistant director for food surveillance and control at the Food and Environmental Hygiene Department, Dr. Lee Siu Yun, said officials have taken several hundred samples from McDonald's warehouse for checks, but they have not found any meat that seemed moldy or smelly. However, she said the authorities have now decided to ban all imports from all factories of Husi, not just the Shanghai one. Food from Husi that has been imported and now stored in Hong Kong should no longer be supplied to consumers. They will be marked and sealed by our staff. Importers or vendors are reminded that if they hold any food from Husi in their store, they should stop selling them and contact the Centre for Food Safety. McDonald's also said it has imported meat products from other Husi factories. It's bought ingredients for its chicken nuggets and Korean-style sleet beef from the Hebei factory and vegetables from the Guangzhou facility. In a statement released half an hour after the government held its press conference, McDonald's apologised for the confusion in releasing the information. The Democratic Party's Helena Wong, the chairman of LegCo's panel on food safety, welcomed the government's decision to ban the imports, but she criticized its slow reaction to the scandal. I think the Center for Food Safety should uh, follow on the issue and investigate why this case happened, whether it is mismanagement or that uh, they, they, they have different purpose in telling us different story. I agree with the Center for Food Safety that they made the decision that they will stop importing all this uh, food stuff uh, from Hushi. And, uh, but I, I think that they are doing it too slow because if we compare Hong Kong with uh, Macau, Macau did the decision right away on Wednesday. And the Hong Kong 
a center for food safety make the decision yesterday. So why we cannot react uh, more quickly and why it will need to take four days for the uh, Hong Kong government to take action? Democratic Party's Helena Wong. To international news now, fighting between Israelis and Palestinians has spread to the West Bank. Clashes have broken out between thousands of Palestinians angry at the events in Gaza and Israeli security forces near a checkpoint in the territory. An Israeli police spokesman said live ammunition had been fired at security forces at a checkpoint between Ramallah and Jerusalem. The BBC's Nawal Assad is in Ramallah. Three Palestinians were killed and more than 100 injured in clashes with the Israeli army near Kalandia checkpoint. That checkpoint separates Jerusalem from Ramallah. The whole thing started at 9.30 local time when thousands of Palestinians marched from the outskirts of Ramallah towards the checkpoint, chanting slogans calling for an end to the siege on Gaza and an end to the Israeli occupation. The Israeli occupation actually closed the checkpoint earlier today and fortified the exit of that checkpoint, but the demonstrators reached that checkpoint and clashed with the the army. The Israeli army says that uh, they have used riot dispersal means, but I was there all evening and I have heard bullets. Rubber bullets were fired heavily there, and also I heard sound bombs, and I... There were also uh, live uh, bullets from time to time. Earlier, at least 13 people were killed and more than 30 others injured when a U.N.-run school was hit by a bombardment in Gaza. Hundreds of Palestinians were in the building in Beit Hanun. The United Nations is unequivocal about who's responsible for what happened at this school. This is Bob Turner, director of Gaza operations at the U.N. This is the fourth time in four days that one of our schools has been struck by Israeli forces. Um, the, we know that the, the security situation in Beit Hanun had been bad. Uh, over the course of today, we had been trying to negotiate uh, a time period during which the Israelis would, would guarantee that we could remove our, our staff and, and those displaced that, that would choose to leave. That window was never granted. That was a designated emergency shelter. We had transferred the location of that to the Israelis on 12 occasions, uh, the last time at 10.56 this morning. It was well known. It's, uh, it's, it's outrageous. It's shocking. That's Bob Turner from the U.N. The number of dead and injured continues to rise in Gaza, and the fighting is spread to the West Bank. The U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry is back in Egypt now trying to negotiate a ceasefire. White House spokesman Ben Rhodes said the latest events show just how important it is to reach an agreement. We are working to bring about an immediate ceasefire, precisely because we're very concerned about the growing civilian death toll. Uh, we're deeply concerned by uh, the attack that took place today uh, that took the lives of a number of civilians at the U.N. compound. Uh, we believe that the growing toll among Palestinian civilians is unacceptable. However, the ceasefire has to deal with the fact that there has been this rocket fire from Hamas into Israel. Uh, so Israel has to be assured that part of a ceasefire is going to be an end to this rocket fire, an end to terrorist attacks through the tunnel networks. Brings the time to 19 minutes now before 9 o'clock. You're listening to Money for Nothing here on Radio 3.
Nice to have you with us here. Uh, we'll return to our news coverage uh, a little bit later in this half hour. Uh, the Ukrainian government and the prime minister there, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, has resigned. And so we'll have more on that. Uh, also, support for Hong Kong's proposed third runway seems to have plunged from three years ago. And we've got a special report on that. This is Money for Nothing. And we continue now looking at, uh, we had tipped this early in the morning that we would be talking about angel investing. I'll bet you didn't even realize that there were angel investors in Hong Kong, and they're out there scouring uh, the streets for upcoming companies, startups that would be worth sinking some money in. ASIN Company is a global private equity group that specializes in co-investment. They invest across the spectrum of direct investment strategies, leading or participating in investments at the angel growth buyout and secondary stages. Oh, nice to have you guys on the program. It almost sounds like a, an ad there. Uh, Mark Seitz is uh, the managing director of ASIN Company. And Michael A. O'Keefe is the senior investment element. Gentlemen, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. And also, Angelina Draper joins me in the studio, good and morning. she will also uh, sit in on this. And we'll also do our tech update uh, a little bit later on uh, in, in the program. Uh, so let me go to, to you first, Mark. Uh, is Hong Kong a ripe place to look for private equity uh, investments, and, and particularly in terms of angel investments, young companies that really need your help? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, why we chose Hong Kong is because we really believe it's a, a platform for young companies to grow. There's nothing like the San Francisco Bay Area here in, in Asia. And when you look at uh, young companies needing to establish and having to have efficiency and, you know, good labor labor force, I think Hong Kong is absolutely the place for young companies. To Even with start. costs like this, costs are so high, how can a young company well, make it? The only thing which is really costly is the real estate, actually. So you're seeing a lot of, you know, incentives from the government and associations like Invest HK or Startup Hong Kong, which are trying to, you know, provide a more affordable, as I was saying, housing costs and, and even, you know, office space for these companies. And I think uh, with you know new 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 VC and angel companies that ourselves looking at establishing ourselves here, it will definitely drive uh, drive the market to to towards actually for, you know doing affordable uh, affordable office space for um, for these kind of companies, which is really the only cost. Because actually, when you see the barriers to entry, it's become so easy to create a startup today that uh, through technology and through the actually you know creating minimum viable products or prototypes has been never so easy as it has been today. Okay. On your website, you mentioned aggressively, you mentioned you search for companies that are aggressively disrupting. Um, can you give us some examples of um, such companies? Absolutely. What we're looking at is really companies which, uh, which are going to disrupt the market in a very special way and where we, which you can help. So we've looked at, for example, uh, one company which was in the wearable space. So wearables are everything which you know, we talk about, Google Glasses and all these items which you know, can, can identify uh, you know, technology um, and one of them are the smartwatch industries, right? So the smartwatch today we're hearing about, you know, Samsung and uh, even maybe you know Apple doing an, an, an iWatch. So we identified, you know, quite a few years ago, a company called Pebble, which was a success, you know, in, in the Kickstarter uh, space. And, um, and we identified that trend long before you know smartwatches were even becoming a trend. And that's the whole thing about early stage investing is to identify trends before they're really good. So they're a supplier into an iWatch, or do they, so they actually they develop produce and design themselves? They actually produce and design their own their own watch, and they have their own uh, ecosystem where actually developers can develop a number of apps. Uh, so it's uh, it's open source, and it plugs into both the Android system and the uh, the the um, iPlatform. Is it likely Apple. a company like that would go to market fairly soon, or would they stay private for a long time? No, absolutely. I think they will. Uh, they were looking actually to eventually do a uh, do an IPO next year or year after. Um, maybe Michael wants to jump in and give some more details on Pebble. 
Yeah, so uh, Pebble, it's a company based in San Francisco, um, and they've come to to market with their products. They have two products uh, as of now, um, and they recently came out with their their second version. Um, and they've been doing quite well. Uh, we're very happy with uh, with the investment as of now, uh, and we're we're very excited to uh, see them grow into the future. Well, I thought we were talking about Hong Kong companies. Now you name Pebble as a, a company based in San Francisco. So the company is based in San Francisco, and we can uh, definitely see them expanding into Hong Kong and uh, the Asian market uh, for sure. You know, they're very present in the U.S. Uh, and they're moving into Europe shortly. Um, and I think with our global network uh, at Asian Company, um, we could be super helpful in uh, bringing them over. To Asia. What are the cultural attitudes of Hong Kongers? Well, wait a second. Before we go there, give me a, you gave us a good example, but we want a Hong Kong example. Sure. So, for example, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, we gave, we gave a, a, a small, a small launch party yesterday, and we got quite a few companies which uh, which came to, uh, to to see us. And what's interesting is many of these companies which are trying to do similar um, products which we know of, such as, for example, the Uber taxi experience, which are trying to do the same thing in in Hong Kong. So, there's a company called Easy Van, for example, in Hong Kong, who's trying to do the same thing in logistics. So that's typically a company we would look at and actually, you know, decorticate, do due diligence on, and if we think that could be a winner, we'll, we'll provide the capital solutions and apply our know-how as well as our local support to, to, to bring the added value to the company. Okay, so you've been in Hong Kong now for some time, and what have you found in terms of cultural attitude towards angel investors in Hong Kong, both from the, from the prospect of, the, of possible startups as well as just other investors in the, in the market? Sure. I think for, for the investors, it's, it's always very difficult to do a direct investment because the problem is you're mostly excited by the company you know from your best friend, and which you know usually uh, has a lot of risk. So it's very hard for investors to uh, A, diversify and spot the right investments, right? So what we bring to the table is really not only diversification and a global network and risk management when it comes to identifying these, uh, these, these leaders and, and the next uh, um, best, best-in-class startups and management teams, but it's also providing to these companies, you know, a lot of support because they need it. It's not just about the, the product and the idea. It's then the execution, you know, having the right management team around them and then providing the adequate capital solutions to help them grow. Is there an ideal time for a company in a company's life cycle for an angel investment to come in? So basically it's it's the, the, the real problem, actually, when you do, do angel investing is, is about the, the timing is correct. It is sometimes of a problem, and you have to be able to, to be patient when it comes to angel investing, that's for sure. But I think it's really about today where, where you can come in and make a difference is in terms of what kind of solutions you really provide for the company as a, as a, as a stakeholder or as a capital provider. And having a global footprint and today being you know, so, so internationally, uh, internationally plugged in really helps it. Because today technology is so disruptive that you have to be able to grow companies outside of their home markets. You'll find a lot of companies who start up in Hong Kong but then need to grow outside. Okay. And what... Angel investors, what kind of uh, rates of return can they expect? So that's always, you know, the, 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 the $1 million question, I would say, because you put in, you know, sinking capital and you hope that you're going to, you know, tag the next Facebook or the next Twitter. The reality is that can be. But what we're finding today is that when you when you look at these uh, these investments, uh, you have to be patient. So obviously it's not, you know, you're not investing in, in, in liquid stocks. So you, the, the returns, you know, uh, are, are going to come at, at the exit. But what I think is, is very important is uh, to, re- to mar- remind yourself that when you do these kind of early stage in, in investing, it's more about the story you're going to support and what kind of team you're co-investing with. The problem is when you invest in, you know, your best best friends, uh, new new venture, the re- returns, you know, are my 
are, you know, it's very rare that you'll find the next, uh, the next Facebook or Twitter. So you're better off investing with people who have the know-how and co-investment expertise and, you know, trust them, trust them with your own money to be able to make a substantial return. So over the years, what we've seen is we're always going to to target companies, not necessarily to become, you know, the next uh, next huge success story, but actually going to be a success. So for us, you know, a minimum of five to ten times is what is our, what our target is. Do you look more at the management team or the idea behind the company? So both are important, but execution is definitely, you know, uh, extremely, extremely valuable. So that's where also we bring our own expertise is helping them actually select the right management for that team. Because you can have, you can have a fantastic idea, but if you don't execute correctly, no matter how good that idea is, it's not going to go anywhere. How do you actually source these things? So this is a good question. So you, we built over the years, you know, a substantial network of uh, either serial entrepreneurs, which we've identified. We team up with, you know, very credible uh, venture companies, uh, Index Ventures, or in every local office we are, whether it's in Europe, in the U.S., uh, or here in Asia, we try and team up with incubators. One of the, the famous incubators in the U.S., which we have a very good relationship to, is uh, Y Combinator, which incubated, you know, many startups uh, in, the, in the past few years and be extremely successful. And uh, here in Asia, for for example, there are a few incubators who are trying to, uh, to, uh, to, to pick themselves up. RGL Holdings being one of them. We have an ex- exceptional relationship with them. And uh, that's how we really try and source, uh, source the different companies. Let's bring uh, Michael in. Uh, another example, Michael, um, you know, where, where you look at companies, uh, perhaps you could give us an idea of uh, what's a common mistake that they make that uh, should be avoided. Um, I, I think a, a big problem with uh, some of these startups is uh, they go out and raise capital and forget that they have a company that they have to work on. Uh, they spend all their time raising capital, and you know th- that's a big problem with these startup companies. You know they have to focus on their company, uh, and that's perhaps where we try and help and uh, you know take their minds away from the capital raising, help them in that aspect so they can focus on their company. You know they're not usually uh, you know very well trained in in the private equity space they don't know how to raise money as well so we help them with the strategy to a certain extent um, and we let them focus on what they're good at which is building their companies building their technology um, and then help them grow from there do you guys think they're getting much support from government uh, here or government agencies invest hong kong you mentioned you know the push on uh, startup hong kong is there is there much support for some of these small companies so I think there's a few organizations which try try to make a difference. The, the reality, the big problem is, is it's not just about government support. We've seen Singapore trying to provide, you know, a lot of capital, but it's not really helping, right? So what you have to do is provide a, la- you know, a landscape for actually in- investors such as ourselves to come to Hong Kong and make a difference because it's a private money and the direct investments uh, uh, people who, who are going to help these companies grow. So it's more creating a landscape for, for, for companies such as ourselves, venture companies or incubators to actually help, you know, provide capital in an efficient way. And I think the government is realizing that, and Hong Kong is a great place to uh, to actually help with that. Okay, gents, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Michael O'Keefe, uh, Ace & Company Senior Investment Strategist, and Mark Seitz there, the company's managing director. The time is now seven minutes before 9 o'clock, and we have our tech update now with Angelina Draper. Amazon customers might love the self-proclaimed everything store, but Wall Street is questioning the company's spending strategy. The company reported losses of $126 million, much higher than analysts' average estimate of $66.7 million. This is in spite of a 23% rise in sales. This year, Amazon launched a smartphone, an Apple TV rival, a cloud storage service, and a music streaming device, causing concern that the company was stretching itself too thin. Amazon's lack of profits are in stark contracts with the Alibaba Group, which disclosed in a prospectus 
in May, profits totaling 2.8 billion on revenues of 6.5 billion for the nine months ending on December 31st. Amazon, on the other hand, earned 274 million on sales of 74.5 billion for all of 2013. Bloomberg contributor Paul Kordorsky says profits didn't seem to matter in the past, but it does now. I actually feel like there's a sea change underway on Amazon and is about to start mattering. And it's going to start mattering because, you know, there's this sense that, you know, the company is in a position, given its scale and size and everything else, that it should be producing more profits. In particular, it's launching initiatives that are intended to drive that, you know, the Amazon phone and some of the other things going on. And they're getting poor reception. Kindle Unlimited's gotten kind of a waffling reception. The new Amazon phone got, I would say, kind of crap reviews in most of the major publications over the last week as people used it. And I think you're going to see much tougher questioning of Amazon, in particular about its new products and how they're going to do anything to change what's been a pretty lousy picture in terms of cash flow generation from an incredible-sized business. Chinese search engine giant Baidu posted better-than-expected second-quarter results with net income rising 3.55 billion yuan in the three months ending in June. The company's performance got a boost as advertisers increased spend to reach mobile users. Baidu shares rose 2.1% to $204.27 in extended trading. So far this year, the stock has climbed 15%. Lenovo debuted a smart glass prototype yesterday in a move aimed at attracting developer and hardware manufacturers. Not much is known yet about the functionality of the glasses, which bear an uncanny resemblance to the Google's glass product, but the company said more details would be announced in October. The glasses are just one of many products from Lenovo's NBD platform, as the company targets connected devices that form the so-called Internet of Things. Thank you, Angelina. Five minutes now before nine o'clock. We return to our news coverage. The Ukrainian government and the Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk have resigned after two major parties withdrew from the coalition. The move is likely to trigger early elections within a few weeks. In the meantime, Dutch investigators who've been sent to examine the wreckage of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 are stuck in Ukraine's capital. That's because of the continued fighting between government and separatists in the area near the crash site. We get more here from the BBC's Richard Galpin in Kharkiv. I think the issue is you can physically you can get there as, as um, hundreds of journalists have been able to do over the past week. I think the issue is that for these forensics teams and um, other experts who want to get to the site, it is a question of security and how risk averse they are because the fighting, of course, is not that far away. Certainly several times when we were down there, just after the crash happened, uh, we could hear rockets being fired in the distance, but I would say that was a good 10, 15 kilometres away. But then there's also been the outbreak of fighting around Donetsk, which would be the normal place you'd expect uh, the experts to be based, because it's the closest major city. And they're obviously worrying about that as well. And, of course, you know, it's just unclear exactly how they're going to be received by the pro-Russian separatists in that area, who are obviously very, very heavily armed, and whether there can be a really cast-iron guarantee of their security for the, or security for the experts. Richard Galpin reporting. Here at home, support for Hong Kong's proposed third runway seems to have plunged from three years ago. In a poll that was carried out by an alliance of green groups and professionals, only 39% of respondents backed building another runway at Cheklap Kok. That's down from 70% in an airport authority study back in 2011. It's been revealed that people who buy homes in a government-subsidized project in Tai O will have to pay property management fees of $2,000 
$1,000 a month. That's about $4 a square foot, similar to the charges at many luxury blocks in the mid-levels. But the Tai O flats are being sold for less than a million dollars each. Richard Pine has the numbers. The 85 home ownership scheme flats in Tin Lee Court were billed as the cheapest available in Hong Kong when the housing authority revealed in March that the 480 square foot apartments would be sold for between 640 and 890 thousand dollars. That seems like a reasonable claim. For instance, for the cheapest units, you could put 10% down as a down payment, 64 thousand dollars. Then find a mortgage plan that charges you 2% annual interest over 25 years, and the monthly payment works out to roughly $2,400 a month. But let the buyer beware. It's now emerged that the monthly management fee will be $2,073 per flat per month, just 15% less than the mortgage payment under this scenario. The chairman of the Housing Authority's subsidized housing committee, Stanley Wong, conceded that the fees are higher than expected, but added that they are in line with market prices. He said it's partly down to the fact that there are only 85 flats in the 12-storey block to share the management costs. He also said the authority could only find a single property management company to take up the project in a second tender after the first failed to attract any bids. It's understood that many companies have been put off by the building's remote location in Tai-O. But Mr. Wong said homeowners could discuss the fees and charges and the scope of services with the management company once they've set up a homeowners corporation. The authority received more than 12,000 applications for the 85 units last month. It's expected to invite successful applicants to choose their flats next month after ballots were held today to decide who'll get a chance to apply for the flats. Richard Pine reporting. Well, that's our program for today. We'll just leave you with the weather as we go out. Um, by the way, markets uh, are all in green numbers this morning, so looking uh, like a pretty good start to the day. So taking a look at the weather for today, mainly cloudy with some showers, some thunderstorms too, sunny periods expected as well, the maximum temperature 32. The outlook for the next few days includes showers becoming gradually uh, more uh, fine uh, for the couple of days after that. Morning Brew is next. Radio 3.